0: All right, so the title, uh, once again, all these titles are pretty long. This one's right up there with them. It's the sometimes weird and wacky ways of God. As I've studied these chapters, it's really kind of jumped out at me just how I don't really understand God. Uh, the ways of God are just so strange to me at times, and these two chapters are particularly um, prevalent when it comes to just why God are you doing this? Why him? Why now? Why this way? I wouldn't do it this way, God, but see, God's ways are not my ways. And sometimes his sovereignty really does look like it's a form of insanity, Uh, especially as you, you enter into a problem and you see things happening and you don't understand them and you don't like them and you wish they were different. It sometimes takes years before you can look back and go, man, God was all over that. God was all through it. He was working in it. And his will was done in the midst of it. So the ways of God. We've looked at chapter 13 last week. We're going to look at 14 and 15 this week. Next week we'll look at chapter 16. But every one of these chapters revolving around the life of Samson all deal with this one thought. Don't lose sight of God. It's so easy in the midst of everything that's going on, and particularly what we're seeing in our nation right now, and really the world, it's, it's so easy to forget that God is in control that God is on his throne, that God does know what's happening. And as we read the life of Samson, what you have to do is look at him through the lens of God, God's sovereignty, that God has not vacated the premises. God has not abandoned him. God has not left the Israelites. God is working behind the scenes in ways that I don't think he saw. I don't think the people saw, but we can see because we're centuries later looking backwards and we can see the hand of God all through the story. It raises this issue we've looked at over the last weeks of how these men get their names put in the great hall of faith, Hebrews chapter 11. Samson's right there. He's right there with Jephthah. He's there with Barak. He's there with, you know, Gideon. And, and you have to ask, why? Why are these men there? And, and Samson more than any of them. Samson to me is like the epitome of the spiritual failure, because I look at his life, and I really, I really, really question, Lord, why did you put him in this hall of faith? Why is he there with Abraham and David and some of these other men? And it's, it's because there's, there's at least one moment in this guy's life when he did put his faith in God, when he turned to God, when he called on God. There's only one, there's only one that we see, but at one point in his life, when everything else failed, he turned to God. And he became at that moment a man of faith. See, that's the key. We've, we've got to keep turning to God, putting our faith in God, relying on God, not panic, not look at the world, not listen to the world, but listen to our God and what he has in store. Because he is and always has been and always will be sovereign over all see Isaiah 55 8 and 9 God tells us my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts see God is not like you and me he's he's not operating on our standard he operates on his standard and sometimes when we see this stuff happening we panic because we view it from a worldly perspective now granted we're We live in this world, we're physical human beings, we're infinite in our knowledge, and so it's easy to panic, and it's easy to see things from that limited perspective. But we have to go back and look at the scriptures and see that God is sovereign. His ways are not my ways. He does things in ways that I wouldn't do. But fortunately, He does. Because if He did it my way, we'd all be in trouble. If He did it your way, you'd be in trouble and we see this so much in the life of Samson and so much of what we see about this guy and so much of what we see about God's workings in his life seem totally crazy and insane he's crazy this guy is absolutely nuts in terms of the way he lives his life you know even if you read this as an atheist you you would think this guy is this guy's screwed up this guy's got some problems some major issues you know, when I was growing up in a, in, in a Southern Baptist church, and this is not a slam against Southern Baptist churches, but I went to Sunday school. And in Sunday school, we had a thing called flannel graphs. You remember flannel graphs? You younger guys probably don't know what they are, but it was a, literally a piece of felt on a board, and the Sunday school department would send out uh, packages of Sunday school material, and in them would be these little figures on felt of like Samson and Delilah. And as the teacher told the story of Samson and Delilah, they would put the little flannel graph up on the felt and it would hang there and the kids would just like, it's it's like magic. How does it stay up there? You know, that was technology in those days. And you know, so they would put Samson up there and what did Samson always look like? Victor mature, yeah, exactly. Arnold Schwarzenegger, he was, he, he was just huge. He was all pumped up and as a kid, especially as a male boy, I looked at that and meant, that's what I wanna be. Every boy in that Sunday school class wanted to be like Samson. And really every time that Sunday school lesson was taught, it was taught that Samson is a hero of the faith. Once again, did any of those teachers ever read the story of Samson in the Bible? Because I read it and I go, why in the world did I ever want to be like Samson? And I don't think Samson looked like that. I think Samson probably looked more like Pee Wee Herman. I really don't think Samson was bulked up. I don't think he was strong because nobody could figure out how he did the stuff he did. That's why later on in chapter 16, his wife's going to go, tell me the secret of your strength. Well, if he's bulked out... She didn't need to ask that. You're just strong. You're just huge. He wasn't huge. He just looked like you and me, average-looking guy. And we have to remember that he's God's chosen leader. How do we know that? What did the angel say to his mom and dad? Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. His whole purpose for being was what? to save the people of Israel from the Philistines. That's why he was conceived miraculously to a barren mother. That's why he was going to be born. That's why he was going to live his life. That was his whole purpose was to save the people of Israel from the Philistines. So what happens? Well, when reading the old Testament in particular, we always have to remember these books were written for a particular audience. Um, they weren't initially written for you and I. Now, because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, yes, they were, but the author, in this case Samuel, was writing it for the Hebrew people living during the period of the kings, the period that came after the period of the judges. And so he writes this book, and he wants them to see something. Every author writes so that you will see something. And so he writes to the Old Testament Jews living during the period of the kings, Saul, David, Solomon, and all those who came after them, and they, he wanted them to see Samson as an image of them. So here's what I think was meant by Samuel when he wrote the book initially. When they began to read this, they would read the story of Samson and Gideon, all these people, but particularly Samson. They'd be reading along going, man, this guy is an absolute moron. How could this guy be a Nazarite and do the things that he's doing? How could he sin against God like he's doing? He's the judge of Israel. How could this guy be so st- stupid? And then they'd go, wait a minute. He looks a lot like me. I'm like Samson. It's like when you read some of the stories about the Israelites and you, you're always blasting the Israelites about how stupid they were and some of the stuff they did. And then suddenly you open your eyes and go, I'm a lot like the Israelites. See, Samson mirrors them. I told you last week, he's the mini-me of the Israelites. He looks like them in miniature. He's the micro of the macro. You look at his life and you go, man, everything he does looks just like what the people do. He's flawed. He's flawed in every way. You can't make him a hero. You can't say, boy, son, I want you to grow up and be a Samson. You could say that. I just wouldn't recommend it. Because he's not there for us to emulate. He's there to show us what happens when you turn to a human Savior and a human Savior who refuses to do the will of God. So what about us? We're the secondary audience for this book. Samuel didn't know about us. Samuel didn't think about us. He didn't have me in mind, but the Holy Spirit did. Because we read this and we're to see Samson as a picture of Jesus. But he's a really bad view of Jesus. He's the like the mirror image, but the dark side of Jesus. He's the savior, right? He's supposed to save the people, but all of his actions are the direct opposite of what Jesus would do when he came as the savior of Israel. So as Christians, we read this story and we see it at a different level because we're on this side of the cross and we see him also as a human savior, a flawed human savior, there is no human savior out there that will save you and me. There is nobody out there that has the solution to the coronavirus problem. And I'm not saying our medical community's not smart and that they came up with a, a cure or a, um, some way to treat it, but ultimately the only savior any of us have is Jesus Christ. And so we read the book from a different perspective. Look at this. Look at how closely Samson mirrors Jesus. And this is a fun study to do if you want to get into it. He's a savior sent from God. He's miraculously conceived and born. He's empowered by the spirit of God, just like Jesus was. He is tempted and tried. He just gives in every time. He's on a mission for God. He defeats the, he's supposed to defeat the enemies of God. He's supposed to save the people of God. Every one of these things about Samson is true of Jesus. He said that Jesus did it the right way, according to the will of God. See, this guy, Samson, what should jump out at you this morning is that everything he did, he did filled by the Spirit of God, which makes it really weird to read this story. Because you're going to see over and over again, and he was filled with the Spirit of God, and then he did something. And the something that he did, you read it and go, why in the world did he need to be filled with the Spirit for that? Why would God empower him to do that? Because that looks like something that God wouldn't want him to do. But see, God's working under the surface in ways that we can't see. His ways are not our ways. Filled with the Spirit of God, he's going to fail to do the will of God over and over and over again. Remember, what did the angel say to his mom and dad? He will begin to save the people of Israel from the Philistines. But he's going to do it in a way that is not willingly done according to the will of God. He does it for his will and according to his way for his own personal gain. He is the most self-centered character we see in the scriptures as far as I'm concerned. It's all about Samson. Everything's about Samson. So look at chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he told his mother and father, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? this story is already off in the wrong direction. Like chapter 13, we ended with he's born. Now we start chapter 14 and he's busy. We have no idea what happened in the middle from when he was born to when, I don't know what age he is here. He's old enough to notice girls, right? He sees this woman and he wants her. He's of marrying age. So he's probably in his mid to late twenties, early thirties. But it's also like Jesus, we have Some information about Jesus as a child up to about age 12, and then there's a huge void, and at 30, he shows up on the scene to be baptized by John the Baptist. So here we have this guy, born, conceived miraculously, and then he shows up, and the first thing out of his mouth is, I want that. Well, what does he want? He wants a Philistine woman. Why is that a problem? He's supposed to be the savior of Israel from the Philistines. The Philistines are the bad guys on the block at this point in time during the period of the judges. But he sees this woman and I gotta have her. Not only do I want her, I want her for my wife. And he demands that his mother and father give her to him. Now remember what we saw last week when the angel told Manoah and his wife that you're gonna bear a son. Two times he said, once to her and once to her husband, be careful, be on guard. For what? This guy has been set apart for me. And you need to be careful that you stay set apart as his parents, that he be raised in a holy home. Now let's fast forward. However many years this is, 25, 28, 29, 30, whatever age he is, he's gone to his mom and dad and said, I want a Philistine wife. And they try the, the, to, to do the right thing. They try to talk him out of it. But it's really obvious that they haven't done a really good job of raising this young man. And he's going to get his way. They're going to cave in. Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. I got to have her. Dad, I don't really care what God says. I don't really care what you say. I want her because she is right in my eyes. And that should recall to us what this book ends with this statement that everyone did what was right in his own eyes this guy is the judge of Israel anointed by God called by God commissioned by God born by the Spirit of God and he is doing what is right in his eyes not what's right in God's eyes right he sees her I gotta have her even though he's the judge of Israel even though he's a Nazarite a Nazarite we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is somebody who takes a vow to God and who says, I will remain set apart to God. I will not drink wine. I will not eat grapes. I will not eat raisins. I will not have anything to do with unclean food. And I will keep myself pure. I won't even cut my hair for the whole entire length of my vow to the God. To God. He's a Nazarite. He's set apart. He's holy. And yet, I want to marry her, a Philistine which means she's a Canaanite. Canaanite is just the overarching term for all those people groups that lived in the land of Canaan. He wants one of the Canaanites, even though God said this to them, do not marry them. Do not let your daughters and sons marry their sons and daughters, for they will lead your children away from me to worship other gods. This guy is supposed to be leading the people away from the Philistines, not toward them. But everything in his life is about who? It's about Samson. Now, verse 4, I I never noticed this verse before in my entire life, and I guarantee not one Sunday school teacher when I was 8, 9, 10, 11 ever shared this verse with me. Look at what it says. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. What? What's the it? Him marrying the Philistine. Now, I don't know about you, but I know enough about the Bible to read that and go, well, that doesn't make any sense. He's a Nazarite. He's been set apart by God. He's supposed to be holy. He's not supposed to have anything with Philistines, most certainly not marry them. And yet it says, this is of the Lord. That ought to just at least put a check in your spirit to go, why, why would God do this? Remember, his ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. This doesn't seem to make sense. And yet God is working behind the scenes in ways that we can understand. And it tells us why God is ordaining this to happen. It says, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. The whole story of Samson is about the Philistines. It's about the enemies of God. And it's about the will of God in doing what God had commanded them to do that they had never done. Which is get rid of the people living in the land of Canaan. See, Samson is just a tool in the hands of God at this point. But here, here is God saying, this is my will that he go after this woman and even marry this woman so that I can accomplish my overarching will for the people of God. This is so much bigger than Samson. See, Samson sadly thinks it's all about Samson. But the story tells us it's really about the will of God. It says, at that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. What's significant about that is the wording In the Hebrew, the wording is they had dominion over them. They were ruling over the the people of Israel. That was not the way God planned it. That's not what God wanted. God said, go in and wipe out all these people groups, because if you don't, you're gonna intermarry with them, you're gonna associate with them, and you're gonna end up worshiping their gods and forsaking me. So it's not what God wanted. It's not what God intended it's exactly what he told them would happen if they didn't clear them out, right? What did he say? Judges chapter two, verse three. They, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Jebusites, will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. What's really fascinating about Samson is Samson never seems to worship false gods like Gideon did. He's not attracted to the gods of the Philistines. He's attracted to the Philistines, Like, he just can't keep his hands and his eyes off Philistine women. Over and over again, you're going to see this pattern. He sees one, i got to have her. And it's going to be literally the death of him. That he's got this lust going on for these women, particularly Philistine women. See, it's not their gods. He could care less about their gods. He's worshiping other things other than the God of Israel. So what's really interesting in the story is that the people of Israel all throughout the book of Judges face persecution. Why? Because God persecutes them because of their lack of obedience and faithfulness to him. But now it's gone to to subjugation. They are subjugated to the Philistines. They are under the rule of the Philistines. They're not just being harassed. They're actually living under the rule of the Philistines and there's nothing they can do about it. So what happens? Samson goes down with his father and mother to Timnah. All of this is taking place in a very small geographic area. This guy never ventures far from home. But everywhere he goes, it's always a Philistine community. You know, he never goes to Jerusalem. He never go, he, he's always going to where the Philistines live, and that's Timnah. So he goes down there with his father and mother. He's got them in tow. And it says, behold, a lion came toward him roaring. Now, first of all, what's he doing in a vineyard? He's a Nazarite. I don't think this is just coincidence. I think he's passing through a vineyard, and I don't think he's on a leisurely stroll. I think he's probably eating the grapes of the vineyard. I think he's hanging out in the vineyard. But it says he passes through a vineyard, and a lion comes out. And I read that, and I go, good, he deserves it. He deserves to get eaten by a lion because he's disobedient. But what does verse 6 say? Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. What? What? I read that and I go, God, why? No, let the the lion eat him. He deserves it. But no, the spirit of the Lord comes upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tears the lion limb from limb with his bare hands. Now, this guy knew he was powerful, right? He didn't know it by looking in the mirror. He was able to do things that nobody else could do. He tears this lion apart. So let's do the cliff note versions of this whole chapter. He sees a woman. She's a Philistine. He wants her. He goes to his parents. They agree to the marriage. They've obviously gone down to Timnah with him to get this woman. He runs into a lion in a vineyard. Shouldn't be in a vineyard. He's a Nazirite. God gives him power to kill the lion with his bare hands, which should jump out at us because he's a Nazirite. And if you kill an animal with your bare hands, what do you get all over your hands? Blood. If you get blood on your hands, as a Nazirite you're now unclean. Remember, he's not to touch a dead carcass. He's not to get close to a dead carcass. He's just ripped one apart, and he's now unclean. And then he doesn't tell his parents about any of it, so by associating back with his parents, now they're unclean because he's not gone through any ceremony to become clean again. Everything about this guy is wrong. Everything he does, and yet he does it filled with the Spirit. Then he comes back later, we don't know how long later, but he comes back, finds the carcass, and there's a honeycomb with bees in it, and they've got honey, and he eats the honey. What's wrong with that? He's a Nazarite. First of all, I wouldn't eat honey out of a dead carcass to begin with, and I'm not a Nazirite. But he does. He knows he's a Nazirite. He knows he can't eat unclean food, and that's unclean because it's touching a dead carcass. And then he takes it and he gives it to his parents. Hey, guys, here's some honey I found. And he doesn't tell them where he found it. So therefore, now they're unclean. This guy is a total spiritual screw up. And yet he's in the Bible. And this is the the real clincher. It says he goes and he goes to a party. It's called a feast, but the word is really particular in the Hebrew. This is not a Israelite wedding. This is a Philistine wedding. And it's a seven day drunken orgy. Now, is there anything wrong with that? Just remotely wrong with that as an Israelite, but especially as a Nazirite. It says he was surrounded by 30 companions. They're all Philistines, and they're sent there by the Philistines to watch him because he's an Israeli. These are not his buddies, but he's drinking with these guys. He's having a grand old time, even though he's a Nazirite. So he's broken almost every one of his vows as a Nazirite. He's drinking with Philistines. He's marrying a Philistine. He's in a Philistine town and he's unclean. Everything is wrong in the story. And it gets worse. So here he is parting with his buddies, these Philistine friends he's made. It's all fun and games for him. He's having a grand old time and he decides to play a riddle. You see in Samson a lot of deceit. He loves to play games. He loves to. Obviously, not tell his parents that I'm just fed you honey from a dead carcass, now you're unclean. But he comes up with this riddle and he does a wager. They're all drunk, and he says a riddle to them, and he wants them to guess the riddle. They try, they can't figure out the riddle. They're really angry because if they don't come up with the answer, they're gonna have to pay him. And so what do they do? They go to his wife and they threaten her with death if she doesn't find out the answer to the riddle. Now remember, she's a Philistine. They're Philistines. He's an Israeli. She's like, I don't want to die, so she betrays him. She gets him to tell the riddle, and she betrays him, and he's hacked. You can see this pattern over and over again. He gets hacked. You shouldn't have told the riddle. You shouldn't have ratted me out. Now I got to pay these guys off, and I got to keep my debt. And so he's going to come up with a plan, a way to keep his debt to these guys. And again, this is one of those verses you read and you got to go, why now? Why him? Because it says, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. So once again, empowered by the spirit, he goes down to Ashkelon, another Philistine town. And he strikes down 30 men of the town who are just walking around minding their own business. And he takes their spoil to pay off the 30 guys back in Timnah. Why is God doing this? Why would God empower him to do this? Remember, who's he killing? Philistines. See, he's doing it in a way that to me seems wrong, but in God's eyes, it's accomplishing his will. Now, this story is going to raise all kinds of questions in your head about the sovereignty of God, the free will of man, and man's responsibility. And you know what? I can't give the answer to any of those. All I know is... God's at work, God's in charge, God's using this man to accomplish his will, and he's using a man who is incredibly flawed and who's doing it in ways that are totally selfish. So the Spirit rushes upon him. He's angry once again, and everything the guy does is selfishly based. He's doing it for his own good, out of arrogance, out of pride, out of total self-sufficiency, and self-centeredness. He, nowhere in this story does he ever think about God. Only once. It's always about him. It's always about what's been done to him. And he's totally driven by what? His physical appetites. I see her, I want her. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. You offend me, I'll kill you. You see it over and over again in this story because he can't control himself. And yet, over and over again, what do we see? The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And guys, I read that, and you should read that, and you should say, why? Why would God do this? Why would God put his spirit on this man? And he uses it and misuses it, and he abuses it over and over and over again. And it's real easy for me to look at that and go, God, I don't get it. I don't like it. It seems wrong. It seems out of place. This story doesn't fit scripture. It just seems like you're doing things all wrong. But i got to keep reminding myself, he's God. His ways are not my ways. But I do see in this man, he's using the power of the spirit for personal gain. And I have to stop and ask myself, wait a minute, do I ever do that? Do I ever use the blessings of God for my personal gain, for my own selfish interest? Do I use the supernatural strength given to me by God to get what I want? Think about prayer. Prayer is something given to you by God. It's an opportunity given to you by God to come to the throne of God and ask things of God. But how many times do you use that power given to you by God for selfish gain, for selfish interests? It's always about you. It's always about my needs, what I want. Do this for me. Do this for me. I need this. I want that. Get that for me, God. And we're using and abusing a power that he's given us And I'm not telling you, you can't ask God for things, but guys, how many times do you ask God for things but never ask what God would have you do? See, we can do the same thing. Because every time in the life of Samson, you see his power tied to the Spirit's presence. What he did, he did in the power of the Lord. Anything he accomplished, he accomplished in the power of the Lord. But sometimes he attempted to try to use that power for his own purposes. See, I don't think Samson understood why he was strong. He knew he was strong. He was able to do incredible things like rip a lion apart with his bare hands, but he didn't understand why he had the power. He forgot the commission God had given him. You were to save the people of Israel from the Philistines. And he was using it for personal gain. And I know that it wasn't his hair. We're going to get into this next week in greater detail. But fast forward to chapter 16, verse 20. See, I was told in those Sunday school classes that Samson was strong because of his hair because when his wife Delilah cuts his hair, he loses all his strength. But look, look at what it says. And he awoke after she cuts his hair and he says, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. His power came from the Lord, not his hair, not because he... Didn't eat certain foods or he didn't drink wine. It was because the Lord gave him power. And when the Lord vacated the premises, the Holy Spirit left him, he lost his power. It was not his hair. And see, guys, you and I have power given to us as believers in Jesus Christ. We have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And we are gifted by God, but sometimes we don't understand and think about, why am I gifted? Why has God placed his spirit within me? And if it's always about you, you don't understand why. And you're going to end up misusing the power given to you. See, Paul told the Ephesians, you are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he, God, planned for us long ago. See, God's got stuff he wants you to do. God's got things he's gifted you to do. He's empowered you to do. He put the spirit in you for that purpose. See, his grace is the power to live the life you've been called to live. Peter tells me, I have everything I need for life and godliness because of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. See, that's the grace of God. I didn't earn it, don't deserve it. Paul was able to say, or God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. You don't need anything else. That's as true of Paul as it is of me as it was of Samson. Samson had everything he needed to accomplish the will of God, but he never did it according to the ways of God. See, God's grace and power is meant for accomplishing God's will, not your will. But how many times do you and I accomplish our will with the power that we've been given, with the strength that we've been given. We spend our days doing things that we want to do the way we want to do them. But see, Jesus, who's the Savior, the true Savior, the human, the God-man Savior, the perfect Savior, did everything he did in the power of the God, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, and he did it perfectly according to the will of God. It's really interesting. If you think about the temptations of Jesus when Satan came to him in the wilderness, every one of those temptations was trying to get Jesus to do something with the power given to him by God for himself. And what did he do? Not going to do it. Not going there. I am not going to take the power given to me, my God, to do my will, feed myself, glorify myself. I'm going to do it for his glory, for his will, according to his purposes and according to his ways. So you don't see that in Samson. So chapter 15 takes us to another part of this sad guy's life. It says, after some days, after the wheat harvest, he goes back home to his wife, who he abandoned. He, he paid off those 30 Philistines, and then he just vacates the premises. He's married, but he leaves his wife. He's so hacked, he just leaves her behind. He lives, leaves her in Timnah. Then he shows up, and this is so classic. This is a typical man he says, I will go into my wife in her chamber and you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know what he wants, right? He's not looking for conversation. He's looking for sex. And he brings a lamb, a young goat. It's like flowers. I've been gone for three months here, honey. I'm back. Here's a young goat. But her, her father gives him some bad news. Won't let him go in. And he says, I thought you hated her. You left her. So I gave her to somebody else. Now, how do you think that's going to go over with Samson, this guy who can't control his his emotions? He says, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. He is hacked once again. Why is he hacked? Because they're Philistines? No. Because they've offended God? No. Because they're idolatrous? No. Because they're uncircumcised? No. Because they took his wife, who he abandoned, and gave him to somebody else. And he's going to wreak havoc on them. So, he returns to the wife he abandoned his father-in-law tells him bad news he responds just like we expect he says i'm going to wreak evil on you that word is raw and it's the exact opposite of righteousness in the bible he's not going to do the righteous thing he's going to do the evil thing the wicked thing all out of personal vengeance and personal gain and personal satisfaction you screwed me i'm going to screw you is basically what he's saying and he does But see, God, behind the scenes, is doing things his way to accomplish his will and his purposes through this very flawed individual. So what happens? Well, he's going to go and attack the Philistines. But see, God's in the middle of it. And the focus is really on the Philistines, right? God created him to deliver the people of Israel from the Philistines. He's married one of them. He's been hanging out with them but God's gonna still use him to do what he needed to do. They're the enemies of Israel. But see, the sad thing is he didn't understand it. Samson didn't understand that these people are not to be ruling over us. We shouldn't be subjugated to them, but he and the people of Israel were perfectly fine with it. Why else would he go hang with them? Why else would he intermarry with them? Why is he, as the leader of the Israelites, modeled this behavior Because he's just perfectly fine with Philistines. He's been Canaanized, just like we saw Gideon. And so we see Israel, Samson, learning to live, compromise their lives, compromise their faith, complacent about their walk with God, but God's not okay. God's not okay with this. You and I can get okay with our lifestyle, but God's never okay with it. And God's always going to do what God's prone to do, and that's to deal with wickedness. And in this case, the Philistines. And once again, he's going to use this flawed man. So what's he do? Samson goes out and he catches 300 foxes and he takes torches and he ties their tails together, two, two foxes together, puts a torch in between their tails and sends them out into the fields and the orchards of the Philistines. Now we read that story and go, man, that's pretty fantastic. That's pretty weird. That's pretty bizarre. How did he do it? I don't know how he did it. Other than he caught 300 foxes right? That's just amazing to me. If you told me to go out and catch one fox, I couldn't do it. If I could catch two foxes, I most certainly wouldn't tie their tails together. Just think about that. Think about tying two cats' tails together, what you would look like in the process, how successful you would be. He catches 300 foxes, ties their tails together, puts a torch between them, and sends them out in the fields, all out of vengeance, but it's all supernatural strength. See, this is, this is, he's doing this in the strength that God has given him, but why? What's his motivation? Selfishness, self-centeredness, anger, revenge, has nothing to do with God, has nothing to do with rescuing Israel. Israel's like the farthest thing from his mind. He's obsessed with what? Philistines, but for all the wrong reasons, not because they're the enemies of God, not because they're subjugating the people of God, it's because they've offended Samson. And this is what he does with the power God gave him. But once again, God's got a greater agenda. God's got a greater plan. And I love what happens. The Philistines, they're hacked because their crops are burned. And they go to the father-in-law and they go, who did this? And it's Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So what do the Philistines do? They don't attack Samson. They kill the father-in-law and the the ex-wife and they burn them. They burned her and her father with fire. They don't deal with Samson yet, but I love this question. Who has done this? What's the answer to this question? We should know it, right? It's God. It's not Samson. God did this through Samson. They didn't know it. The Philistines didn't know it. Sadly, Samson didn't know it. The Israelites didn't know it, but God is the one who's doing all of this because it's all being done in the power of God. But the Philistines end up attacking the wrong people. They burn the poor father-in-law and they burn the ex-wife of Samson. See, the answer to this is Yahweh. It's not Samson. Samson's just a tool in the hands of God. Samson is operating in the flesh. He's doing what he wants to do, but he's doing it empowered by the spirit. It's this weird combination operating according to what he wants, but he's doing in a power given to him by God to accomplish the will of God, because God's working in his life in ways that we don't understand, ways that we can't see, orchestrating events in such a way that they accomplish his divine will. See guys, if you learn nothing else from this lesson, I hope it's that you understand that God's gonna work his will regardless of what you think, and regardless of what you do. God doesn't need you. He wants to work through you. He wants to use you, but God will accomplish his will in spite of you. The sad thing is, if we would walk along with him, if we would use that power in the right way, we would be so blessed. But we we don't see that ever in this guy's life. Proverbs 69 says, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God's will is going to be done with you or without you. Many plans are in man's heart, but the purpose of the Lord will prevail. You will not hold back the will of God. You may think you're stubborn. You may think you're getting your way, your will, doing things the way you want to do them in your time, in your way, but God's will will always be done. So what happens? Once again, he's angry. He swears to them, I will be avenged on you. I will not do it until I get my revenge on you, and then I will quit. I will be done. It's all about Samson. Samson doing what he says he's going to do and he does what he says he's gonna do. It says he strikes a great blow. But at the end of the day, this is God's victory, not his. God's gonna use his impulsive actions, his his self-centered nature to accomplish his overarching plan. See, God's always working his plan. I don't understand the coronavirus, I really don't. I don't understand why we're so fearful. I know it's real, I'm not downplaying it. I know we need to be careful, but guys, God is on his throne. He knows what's going on. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I hate the fact that the stock market has dropped like a rock. I hate that it's going to impact our economy here in Fort Worth, Texas. I hate that people are afraid to come to church and fellowship. I hate what it's doing, but I got to believe that God is behind it all. He's either on his throne and he's in full control or he's not God. If God's up in heaven and he's wringing his hands and he's worried, then we need to be worried and we need to find another God. But see, that's not the case, and it wasn't the case in the story of Samson. God was going to rescue the people. Samson just wanted revenge. See, I want to walk with God. I want to do things God's way, according to God's will, not my own. So again, Philistine army shows up. They want to capture Samson, so Judah sends 3,000 men to catch him. They don't fight. They don't reject the Philistines out of hand they don't attack the Philistines they catch this poor nut and they turn him over and it shows just how complacent and compliant they are they even tell Samson when they catch him don't you know that the Philistines are rulers over us what is this you've done to us why did you do this to us and they betray him didn't Jesus get betrayed by his own people turned over to the Romans to be put to death that's exactly what we see happening here So when the Philistines finally get their hands on him, what happens? Once again, Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. The ropes fall off of him like they've melted off. He didn't break them, God just sets him loose. And what does he do with that power? What does he do with that opportunity? Well, it's Samson. It's what Samson always does. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. Why is that bad? Once again, Carcass, breaking his vow, of all the things he could grab, he grabs this, the jawbone of a donkey. And with it, he strikes a thousand men. And then he writes a song about it. With a jawbone of a donkey, with the jawbone of a donkey, he's proud of what he just did. What did he just do? Break his vow. But see, God's working behind the scenes. He breaks his vow. He even brags about it. He writes a poem about it. But he never gives any glory to God. Which reminds me of what Deborah's song we studied a couple of weeks ago. After their victory over the Midianites, she writes a song. She says, repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord. It's all about God, but Samson's all about Samson. And so what's he do? He threw away the jawbone. After he kills the thousand Philistines, he renames the place Jawbone Hill. Now think about that. You just sin by picking up that jawbone you did it all for the wrong reasons. And now you name the place Jawbone Hill, commemorating your disobedience to God. And then it says he was very thirsty. And I'm going to blow through this really quick, but this, this guy's is so interesting to me. It's why I love the scriptures. It says he was very thirsty and he called upon the Lord. It's the first time he's ever called out to God in this whole story. Why is he doing it? Because he's thirsty. You've granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? See, he's complaining to God. He said, I did this great thing for you. I killed all these Philistines. Now I'm thirsty. Are you going to let me die of thirst? He's complaining. And this is not the first time this has happened in the life of the Israelites, but it's the first time this guy's ever called out to God, and he's only doing it because he's thirsty. See, he's not looking for God for anything else than just meet my physical need. He didn't want a relationship with God. He just wants rescue from God. Well, think about Exodus 17. People of Israel have left Egypt. They're headed in toward the promised land. They reach this place and they find there's no water. So they go to Moses and say, give us water. We're thirsty. And then they complain and they say, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Is this your idea of good leadership? It's the same thing Samson's doing. And so what does God do? He splits open a hollow place that's at Lehi and water comes out and he drank and his spirit returned and he revived. See, God meets his needs. And then it says he judged Israel for 20 years. But once again, let's go back to Exodus 17. God told Moses, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Masa or Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And don't miss this last part because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? See that question summarizes the two chapters we just looked at. See, he's saying, are you going to be with me or not? Are you here or not? I'm thirsty. Are you going to meet my needs or not? What has God just done? Filled him with his power over and over and over again. And he's used it for purely selfish reasons. And he's now questioning the goodness and the very presence of God. Well, do we? Do we? Well, that's your first question. Have you ever asked that question in one form or another? God are you here? Have you left me? Have you forsaken me? Have you walked out on me? Are you mad at me? Have I done something to offend you? If you've ever asked that question, what are the situations when you typically ask it? When you get thirsty? When you get needy? When your 401k drops like a rock because of the stock market and you suddenly are like God what are you doing? Why me? Why now? What are, you, what are you doing? Is God among us? Secondly, God's grace and power is given so that we might do His will But what are some ways we misuse his grace for our own selfish agendas? Living this life that he's given you and I to do our will rather than his. The only reason you're alive is because of the grace of God. The only reason you're in Christ is because of the will of God to do his will, not yours. Created for good works. Finally, Samson is proof that human saviors can't hold a candle to Jesus. But why do we keep turning to them? Why do we keep looking to human saviors, either ourselves or someone else, the government, the, the medical community, whatever it is we're turning to at this moment in time, why do we keep turning to human saviors? Lord, I thank you for this passage. This, this, this story blows my mind. But, Lord, I thank you that you, sh- you show us yourself in the story that you are a great God. You are all powerful. You are all knowing. You are all caring. You're always working behind the scenes in ways that we can't see and that you are never worried. You're never caught off guard. You're never surprised by anything that happens. And at, at this moment in time, right here in Fort Worth, Texas, with all that's flying around the world and taking place in our community, Father, would you help us to focus our attention on you? that we can trust you, we can rely on you, and that, Father, you have a plan that you're working And Would you show us how to step into that plan so that we work alongside you rather than against you, never using your grace for our own selfish desires? Bless the time around the tables, Father, and would you just help us to grow in our knowledge of you and our reliance upon you in the time we have together? And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.